At Your Service, Giving Our Lives, part one of three. Whenever we start a new sermon series, I usually begin with a caveat or three. Today, it's this. You already know what I'm about to say. Serving is part of the ethos of this congregation. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but an impressive number of you have done voluntary service terms of various lengths with different organizations. You volunteer your time in many ways. You choose meaningful work that makes the world a better place. You give your money and time to support MCC, MDS, MEDA, CFGB, and all the other acronyms. When we have a budget meeting at the end of this month, a big part of the financial conversation is always about whether we are focused enough on serving our community or if we could give and do more. Serving our community and our world is at the core of our faith around here. And it has been for a long, long time. Way back in 2001, this congregation impressed that message on a, onto a young, courageous high school graduate, inspiring her to join the Mennonite Service Adventure Program in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, where she met a charming American youth pastor <laughs> who had also been part of that service program. Well, 19 years later, here I am. So yeah, you know service, and I am so glad that you do. I also know that as Mennonites, the flip side of this value of serving others is a rather overdeveloped trigger for guilt. So in this series with the words that were, and stories that we're sharing from up front, with the songs that we're singing, the scriptures we're choosing, some of you are going to be hearing the voices in your conscience, conscience. You should be doing more. I have that voice in my head too, but I'm going to do my best not to let that come out of my mouth today. I am not here to tell you that you need to do more. As your pastor, I'm quite pleased with what y'all are doing. My hope in this series is to remind you and myself of why we value service, why we do what we do, and perhaps how we might do that in ways that are healthy and sustainable for ourselves and our world. And if you're still hearing the whispers of do more, Anyway, well, pay attention to those. If they come in the voice of a Mennonite relative, well, there's no pleasing some folks. <laughs> but give it a listen. Decide for yourself what to do with that invitation. We do still need two people to help with the Refugee Sponsorship Committee. <laughs> Sisters and brothers, I beg you through the mercy of God to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Imagine a life in ancient Israel. Your family lives a typical working class life. You're fishers, stone workers, herd managers, that type of difficult but fruitful labor. It's a life full of community, full of, tr of tradition, full of routine. Most of that revolves around religion, a set of daily, weekly, monthly practices that guide your steps. Rules to follow, yes, but also celebrations, lots of celebrations. The biggest is the annual Passover festival. Your family usually makes the trips to Jerusalem for the big show. It's a two-day journey on foot, so you don't go to the capital often, usually just once a year. There's a lot going on at this festival, family gatherings, street parties, 
typical hassles of being part of the crowds that move into the city for this special week. But at the center of it all is your trip to the temple, the karbanat, to make your sacrifices. Now most people save a bit of the hassle by purchasing their sacrifice at the markets around the temple. But your family was more traditional. Somewhere along the line, some old geezer had proclaimed, in this family, we bring our own sacrificial animals. If you don't sound like that, you're not a geezer, so don't worry. <laughs> we bring our own sacrificial animals. So you did, every year, selecting the best of your share of the community flocks, a prime sheep or goat. Maybe if it was a really good year, you could afford to bring a bull. And then you would drag it all the way to Jerusalem, because in this family, that's what we do. The temple was the big day. You all got up early to beat the lines. You made your way through the markets surrounding the temple with your head held high in the tradition of great-grandfather so-and-so, in familial superiority over those losers waiting to purchase their sacrifices. You were so much cooler dragging this stubborn beast behind you. Most of the women in your family went off to present the sacrifices of grain, wine, and incense. Those were gifts to the priest in respect for their work. They were offerings to God in gratitude for the faithful provision your family has received. They were an appeal to God for continued protection and blessing. This day, you choose to watch your father take the goat to be sacrificed at the main altar. The priests are careful, practiced, sober, but not unkind. They slit the throat of the goat and drain its blood, and then the assistants efficiently butcher the meat. A choice cut is given to the high priest who says the words and places the flesh on the altar into the fire to burn. Another portion is set aside for the priests and their assistants because clergy got to eat too. But most of the meat is carefully blessed, bundled, and returned to your father. This will be the main course at your family celebration this evening, along with the full meal made with the grain and wine that had also been blessed through sacrifice. Because the purpose of sacrifice was not deprivation, but fullness. Not punishment, but discipline. Not restriction, but blessing. This was the way your family and the whole of your people maintain the sacred connection with God and each other. Karbanat, to draw near. To sacrifice was to draw near to God, and the whole festival and ritual surrounding it was designed to elicit that closeness, the rightly ordered life of shalom. So that's my slightly educated reimagining of the kind of experiences that would have come to mind for the first century hearers of Paul's letter to the Romans. No doubt the reality was quite different, but I am confident about the purpose. Korban in Hebrew means to draw near, and the whole temple ritual was about creating a thin place, relaxing the physical and spiritual barriers between God and God's people. That was the purpose. The function of the sacrifice was much broader. This was a prayer of gratitude. It was recognizing that God was the source of provision and of life itself. It was a pledge of fealty, loyalty, and commitment, a mark that differentiated the Jews and their God from all the others. And it was an act of trust, for most of, the fa most of these families genuinely needed the livestock and the crops that they offered to God. Would God return their blessing, return their offering with blessing? Altogether, sacrifice was about transcendence, going beyond, 
living for something more than ourselves. The reason that you did all of this was because what you did mattered to more than just you. You were part of something bigger, something sacred, something that gave you meaning, purpose, and belonging. And the ritual of sacrifice called that out and made it real, tangible, and close. I think all of that is in mind when the writer of the Book of Romans coins the phrase, living sacrifices. Rather than a ritual that took place from time to time, he reimagined sacrifice as a daily lived experience. And remember, sacrifice isn't about paying a penalty or giving things up. It was about drawing close to God. It was about right relationship. The first 11 chapters of the Book of Romans are about the amazing notion that this closeness is actually possible in spite of our flaws, that nothing can separate us from God. And so, the writer says, therefore, through that mercy, we bring our whole selves all the time into God's presence. We don't just go to the altar, we live at the altar. We are on the altar. And so we live this connection, this awareness and intention of the presence of God, not just on festival days, but every day. This is the vocation of the followers of Jesus, our calling. And so when I'm talking about service, I'm not only talking about doing nice things for others. That's part of it, for sure. The way that we treat others is the path of service. But the purpose is about living beyond our individual selves, attending to this connection between myself and the divine presence. The writer of the book of Colossians, who was probably the same guy who wrote to the Romans, says it this way, Whatever you do, whether in speech or in action, do it all in the name of Jesus, our Savior, giving thanks to God through Christ. And so service is not necessarily about what we do, but about how we do it. That said, how and why we do things will absolutely end up impacting what we choose to do. The purpose is important, and it should lead us then to make choices that prioritize intentional acts of service. Because our default setting through nature and nurture seems to be not sacrifice, but self-centered protection and consumption. That's what the whole ancient tradition of sacrifice was meant to call people out of. We don't do that by bringing our meat and produce to the temple, although our potluck traditions do carry some of that same weight. We serve and sacrifice in lots of different ways, and we are gonna be highlighting those throughout this series. Today we have a guest with us, Annika Raynar. Annika has chosen the practice of service through a year-long volunteer term with Romero House in Toronto. I've invited Annika to share about the work of that community and about her personal experience with a vocation of service. Some of you, uh, I'll introduce you first. <laughs> we gotta play the Mennonite game because that's important. <laughs> Some of you may know Annika through uh, Canadian Mennonite University um, or through her work with the Mennonite Church Canada Emerging Voices Initiative. I've also enjoyed her writing in the Canadian Mennonite Magazine, so you may know her name that way. And she's part of the Toronto United Mennonite Church in Winnipeg. She attended Hope Mennonite, and she's originally from Alberta. So, you Mennonite game players, you've got lots to work with there. Annika, we're glad to come and hear from you. It's good to be with you this morning. So in September, I moved to Toronto to start work at Romero House, a community that supports refugee claimants. I had finished a degree at Canadian Mennonite University and I'd spent a few years working. This fall marked 
almost 10 years since I had initially heard about Romero House when I stumbled across a book by Mary Jo Letty in my public school library in Olds, Alberta. The book was called At the Border Called Hope, Where Refugees Are Neighbors. In it, Mary Jo tells her own story of being invited to take over a night manager position in a refugee shelter threatened with closure. What would be involved, she asked. Just living with them, was the response. The simplicity of the request felt like a summoning, so she said yes and moved in. It was only supposed to be for a month. Within weeks, these strangers became neighbors. Mary Jo, together with others, began to imagine what it would look like to form a community um, that welcomed refugees as neighbors rather than as simply clients. 28 years later, Mary Jo still lives in the community, now known as Romero House. The book was a world-shifting moment for me. It shifted the way I imagined hospitality and neighborliness and service. In the years that followed, Romero House kept popping up in classes I was taking, in articles I was reading. Every time I felt compelled by this community. Experiences taught me to take these sorts of patterns or spirit nudgings, spirit, uh, seriously, they're worth paying attention to. So Romero House is a collection of four houses in the West Bend neighborhood of Toronto. It's named after now Saint Oscar Romero of El Salvador, the church leader martyred for his outspoken defense of the poor in his country. Each house accommodates two to three refugees, refugee families, um, who live in the community for a year. And two staff live alongside the families in each house. Most of these staff are young adults, like myself, who are invited, um, yeah, who are invited to live and work in the community for one to two years. We volunteer our time, and Romero House covers our basic needs and provides us as a small stipend. So as a worker at Romero House, I live in a house with a family from Iran and from Colombia. You can see some of them here. I'm a companion to a single mother from Mexico and her four children. I run Kids Club and I'm a settlement worker in our walk-in program. I spend much of my time with the other workers, beginning every day with prayer and ending the day with a shared meal. You might say that it's a full life. In the rhythms of the week, the times I appreciate most are the in-between spaces. The moments in time spent walking between the houses, sitting to drink tea with residents, rolling up my sleeves to make or bake something. It's becoming a bit of a running joke that all I do is bake bread. I can't help it, I respond. It's the best way I know to care for people who don't speak the same language as me. Lately, I've been learning to make sourdough. Making sourdough is all about waiting. I can do what I can to make the environment such that the leaven and the dough will rise. In the end, though, I have to wait, trusting that the yeast is doing its own work. Since moving to Romero House, I've been thinking a lot about waiting. We work primarily with Spanish-speaking refugee claimants. Colombia, Mexico, and Venezuela are currently some of the most common countries. In my very limited Spanish, I smile at these newcomers. Bienvenido. Espere, por favor. Quieres te? Welcome, please wait. Do you want some tea? To wait, esperar. It's a verb I use many times a day. You need to wait for your eligibility interview. After, you can register for ESL classes. We need to wait for legal aid to call us back. You will need to wait three to four months for your work permit. And on Tuesday, when I run kids club, kids, wait! 
To wait, it can be a tiresome word. I'm sorry, there's no space in a shelter for you right now. We can call again in two hours. We need to wait. I hope you get a bed soon. Necesitamos esperar. Espero que tengas una cama pronto. When I first used the words wait and hope in the same breath, I stopped short in sudden recognition. It's the same verb, esperar, I learned, translates as to wait, to hope, to trust, and to expect. In the same breath, we wait and we hope for friendship, for a sense of home, for safety, for certainty, for welcome, for permanence in Canada, for resolution of conflict in home countries. We wait and we hope. In these breaths, I think of Mary and Joseph, who made the long trek to Bethlehem only to be told that there was no room for them to stay. I think of the Colombian family of human rights advocates who arrived at Romero House with their suitcases. There was no space in the shelter system for them, so they were placed in a holding hotel. At the hotel, which holds up to 200 refugee claimants, there are no settlement supports, no food supplied, and no kitchen access. So after three weeks at the hotel, this family was transferred out of Toronto to a shelter in Pickering, a city that also has very few settlement supports. I think of a woman who made her way to Romero House from the airport just before we closed, speaking only Arabic. I remember her hiccupy tears as she tried to understand why we couldn't give her a place to stay for the night. I can picture her fear as I dropped her off at a shelter and helped her condense her belongings into one garbage bag. I remember the feel of her cheek against mine as I gave her a hug, trying to reassure her that she would be okay. This waiting and hoping is not passive. Like making sourdough, we bring our hands to the work, ready to do what we can to communicate care. And yet, at the end of the day, the yeast works in ways that are beyond our ability to imagine or expect. It's like the words of Oscar Romero, we pray together every morning. We provide yeast that produces effects far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything, and there is a sense of liberation in realizing this. This enables us to do something, and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning. I'm continuing to make sourdough, finding joy in the small beginnings and the opportunities to celebrate in the midst of waiting. On December 21st, I gathered with families in my house to celebrate the Iranian version of the winter solstice, Yalda night. Yalda means birth or new beginnings. In many Iranian poems, Yalda is used to describe a dark night when one gets separated from a loved one, creating loneliness and waiting. To mark Yalda, we gathered to pass the longest night of the year with laughter and good food. I've been thinking about this evening quite often in the last week as I've been following news from Iran. I feel restless and ready to fly back to Toronto this evening. I want to be with my Iranian neighbors. We've been texting a bit this week and I sense their despair. I'm realizing that this is what service, what neighborliness looks like. To be a neighbor is not the same as being family and often it's not even the same as friendship. To be a neighbor is to draw near. A word off the script, but um, I didn't realize that sacrifice meant to draw near. It's an, nice that it's worked its way together. <laughs> to be present to the suffering and to the celebration and to offer myself to the care of others in the midst of it all. 
As Mary Jo will say, this is what happens when human beings encounter each other. You learn each other's names and begin to hear each other's stories. This is the reach of mercy, and within it, the desire for justice is born. That evening, I looked at the faces in the room and felt a deep sense of gratitude. These are the people with whom I've decorated our house for Christmas. I've baked pies and canned peaches with Aram, shared coffee with Sergio, practiced Spanish with Vivian, and played chess with Arden. Together, we are learning to make this house, this city, and this country a home. Thank you. Waiting and hoping, making bread, finding that peace that we can do in the middle of all that we can't do. That's my prayer for you, is that you will find that path, whatever that might be today. May you have the strength and courage to seek, to find, and may you take heart in the company of God and this community along the way. I'd like to close this part of the service with a song based on Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, whether in word, in, whether in speech or in action, do it in the name of Jesus, our Savior, giving thanks to God through Christ. As we sing, we'll invite the ushers to take the morning offering. If you are a visitor here this morning, please feel free to let the offering bag pass you by. Your presence with us is gift enough. Let the words of the Lord Jesus Christ dwell in in the name